Hey there, it's Andrea. Before we start today's show, I have a super quick, exciting announcement to share with all of you. For the first time on Time for Coffee, we have a free giveaway to offer you. In honor of the season of giving that we're all immersed in right now, I am so excited to tell you that Time for Coffee has 50 global giving gift cards with $25 already loaded on them to give out to Java junkies between now and Christmas. In case you're not familiar with global giving, it's the largest global crowdfunding community connecting nonprofits, donors, and companies in nearly every country around the world. These gift cards will make wonderful stocking stuffers or thank you gifts or secret Santa presents to give your colleagues or your professors or guidance counselors, your mentors, your mailman, you get the idea. Even that cute guy or girl you want to get to know better but don't want to give them something romantic, at least not yet. The way these gift cards work is that you can redeem them by going on to the Global Giving website and picking any of the hundreds of different amazing projects Global Giving is featuring in countries around the world. Then your $25 gift card can be used to support any of these projects. And the gift card is non-denominational with a super festive holiday vibe. And all you have to do to win one of these electronic gift cards is to email me at andrea at time the number four coffee.org. That's Andrea at time the number four coffee.org. Just say, hey, I'd love a global giving gift card. And the first 50 people to hit me up for one of these gift cards will get it in their email box on Monday, December 17th, giving you plenty of time to figure out who you want to give it to. Thanks so much, everybody. Happy holidays and enjoy the show. Hi there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's Time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey, Java Junkies, welcome to another episode of Time for Coffee, and I hope you're ready for another caffeinated career conversation because today I have the honor of speaking with Ambassador Rick Barton, who currently teaches at the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton University where he serves as the co-director of Princeton Scholars in the Nation Service Initiative and the Ullman Fellowships. And he is also the author of a brand new book, Peace Works, which we will be getting into during the course of this interview. Rick, welcome to Time for Coffee. Thanks, Andrew. My pleasure. I was going to ask you if you're caffeinated and ready to go, but I know it's a little later in the afternoon. We're doing this interview and he's a wise man. You don't want to be over caffeinated. No, I'm fine. This water is delicious. So in our limited time together, I thought the Java community would probably get the most from tapping into your deep experience in the fields of international development, diplomacy, the United Nations, You've served at the highest levels in all of those organizations. And while this is not a political show at all, we've obviously had changes in the halls of power of our government. And there may well be Java junkies listening today who are apprehensive Mm -hmm. about getting into the bureaucracy of this administration. And so let me let me begin by asking you why you think 20-somethings 
should still be optimistic and interested in going to work for whether it's the U.S. Agency for International Development, the State Department, or other aspects of the fields of these organizations? Well, first off, you you really do still have a chance to make a great difference. I I was surprised when I worked, uh, when I had a chance to start a very small part of AID, the Office of Transition Initiatives, that we were at the very small level of funding that we had. We were at a larger level of funding than most foundations and many of the other people that were working on conflict places the way we were. So there's the opportunity to actually do something and to have the resources to do it and then to have the backing, for example, of the U.S. government, if you're lucky enough to work within the U.S. government, is something that you don't always have in other places. And they're great learning environments as well. And there are many, many, many good mentors. A lot of people who have spent their entire careers working in in these fields, and they love the idea of younger people coming along and and improving on what they've done because they haven't solved all the problems. We've still left enough problems out there for young people to entertain over the next few decades. So I think the challenge, the exposure, the opportunity, the gift of service, I mean, those are all things that I would I would put forward and encourage people to keep in mind. There are tracks that you can take inside these agencies, whether it's at the State Department or USAID. Can you kind of briefly elaborate on them? And by that, I'm referring to the civil service, the foreign Mm -hmm. service, and what the advantages and disadvantages of those tracks in those different institutions are. You can take highly competitive exams for for example for the foreign service which you have to take an, you have to take a written exam and an oral exam and very few people get through those and that's the beginning of a career uh, that's mostly based overseas. The civil service is mostly domestic but again it's highly competitive but not quite the same process that you have for the foreign service. You can also come in as an intern but if you if you're doing the state department the Defense Department, USAID, the intelligence community better start early because the security clearance business today is a, is a nightmare and it takes way too long. And they have very early cutoff dates as well, but those are all posted online. So definitely follow those. And then, of course, you can go to work for a contractor and many of those are brought in to supplement the other categories of people that we've described. Or you can work for an organization that works in parallel with and oftentimes funded by the U.S. government. So some of the non-governmental organizations get quite a bit of their funding from the U.S. government. And then there are a few that that do not, that insist on not getting it to be able to maintain sort of a feeling of independence. So those are all avenues. And, and I, would, I would pursue all of those because it's so problematic. Again, getting your first break is really hard. I think some of the bigger bigger title jobs that I received later in, later in my career, the interviews were half as difficult as the first ones. And nobody ever asked me where I went to school or what kind of a student I was as I went on. So it's really very, it's interesting that things that are so emphasized at the beginning of your career end up becoming less important because people want to see your record. What about outside the USG? You mentioned the non-governmental organizations, but there are a variety, both here in this country and overseas. There's the United Nations and other institutions, even 
in the corporate sector mm-hmm. where you can work that have more of a corporate mm-hmm. social responsibility and even beyond where it really is about the bottom line. It isn't just about doing good for the PR. But what do you think in terms of other back doors into this work? Yeah. And I should have mentioned before the Peace Corps, obviously, and, and then many other federal departments have international programs. But the ones we talked about are the dominant ones. And obviously, the Defense Department, even our soldiers have had the most uh, international exposure probably of anybody at, at this younger age. But I think really getting that international experience, showing people that you are comfortable overseas, that you're that you're intrigued by it, that you're curious about it, that you adapted well to it, that's probably the most valuable single experience you can have if you want to be in kind of an international field. It's just to show that you have an affinity for the place and the people of these places. And then uh, the language is the other piece that if you if you have been able to live in some place and really taken to it and can speak a language and understand it well, that has real marketability because there's so many people who aren't able to do that. You can always hire great translators, and I always do. And there are some people that I work with who will hire two or three just to make sure they're not getting too much of a, a single view from one person. And especially when you're in delicate places and you're dealing with conflict the way we are, they don't want to be boxed into a corner. But I would say that if IBM is going to take you to Hong Kong and you work happily there for a couple of years and you really get to understand sort of the Chinese system, you're going to have something that's very marketable, even if you don't want to stay in the, in the for-profit world. I didn't even mention the hill. Right. And the Hill is a great place oftentimes to get a kind of a, a expertise in a subject so that you might be working for a congressperson who's great interest because their district in St. Louis has got a lot of Bosnians and you might get to know quite a bit about the Balkans. Well, then you've got something that's marketable, a subject matter expertise. And that's another way that you could potentially get into the State Department later in your career if you have that. Yeah. And then there's Hill, the Congress, is one of these exotic beasts that there are a lot of people in the bureaucracy who don't quite know what to make of it. In in fact, they're a bit intimidated by it. So if you have been on the Hill and you've worked it a bit and you kind of understand how things get done there, there are many people in the bureaucracy that will also give you credit for that. So it's a way of, I mean, whatever you're doing, you're building up a knowledge base and experience that people will say, this individual helped me solve some problem that I have. And that's a big part of making yourself attractive, I think, as a, as a candidate. So many of our Java junkies are still in school. What do you recommend they study and or major in? to make them as competitive and, frankly, as prepared as possible for careers in these professions? I'm not as uh, much of a – I don't direct people as much from their area of concentration. So whether it's political science or economics or archaeology or whatever, I'm I'm really more interested in their skills. Do they write? Are they curious? Are they good communicators? Are they good team members? And by the time when I finished my last job at the State Department, I pretty much had two qualities, two key qualities that I look for in anybody I hired. Are you, do you absolutely love the subject matter? Are you fascinated by peace building and by, by the opportunity to make a place more peaceful? And do you, do you work well with others? 
And if you didn't have those two things, then you were not a very strong candidate. But if you had those two things, we'd give you a real look, even if you had many other things that were missing. And I had people who were extremely talented, but could not work well with others that we just got tired of. So that that ability to really pitch in and be part of a team, not be the star, not always require the ball, um, was really important. So we didn't have a no diva rule or no devo rule, but pretty close to it. How can someone work on those skills of being a better team member? Well, I think showing that you've been on teams and recognizing it. And when you tell the story, when you get into an interview or you write an essay, I generally like to have people write something because it's a chance for me to see how they're putting themselves forward in a, in a situation where they can be quite careful. With a written word, you can write it and you can rewrite it and you can write it and write it and rewrite it and edit it and have other people look at it. Whereas the spoken word, you're pretty much left with... You've either made it or you missed it. So those are places that I look for hints that you've been on a team, you understand what working together was, you learn from somebody else. This was surprising to you. This was something that you synthesized from the six conversations. This is what the one thing I really got from those. So any of those kind of analytical skills that show that you're able to take an experience and interpret it in a way that if I haven't been there with you, I get it in a minute or two. You might have spent, I might have sent you to the Congo for four weeks. And I, what I want, when you come back, I want you to bring it to life for me. And I want you to tell me things I'm not going to get from a really good piece in the New York Times or from a good analytical piece from the intelligence community. I want you to tell me something that you picked up by just walking around, sniffing, feeling, sensing. And uh, so those are qualities that, that really matter. What about for those who've already graduated? Sounds like whatever they studied, Mm -hmm. fine. Mm -hmm. But are there books that they could be reading that could kind of supplement Mm -hmm. the person who was an art history major? Who says, because this happens all the time, that as you evolve in your life, you suddenly are like, in fact, I met a couple people last night who started in finance. Mm -hmm. They're in the British Foreign Service now, but they started in finance. They hated it. Mm -hmm. And then they moved into the Foreign Service. So what could... What could our Java Junkie community who don't have the usual resume that you would come? Well, the reading that I would recommend is probably a little different than other people. I happen to love Malcolm Gladwell's books, Outliers, where where he, he really gives a formula for how to be successful that is a little different than others. And quite a bit of it is based on good fortune. And a lot of it's based on rigor and hard work and applying yourself and the rest of it. And that's, to me, seems like a pretty honest combination of of qualities. So I love his work. I love Wisdom of the Crowds. I love some of these they're almost socio, they're reporters, but they're sociologists and they pull things together. But then, then I also like these good stories about how the U.S. economy crashed and the author has really just captured how a, an industry can be totally misguided, how uh, the vast majority of practitioners can fall into a, a bad space. And so I like the, those to me, they oftentimes stimulate my thinking in my field, which is not discussed at all because I'm just coming at it from a different place. And so I wouldn't recommend that you just immerse yourself in everything about our field. But 
also find books like Richard Ben Kramer's What It Takes, which is about an American, it's about the 1988 American presidential campaign, spectacular book. I mean, he really, really does a good job of almost getting inside the heads of, of a handful of the candidates, of, of the presidential candidates. And then you can see what, what happens to some very talented people in an extremely competitive environment. And again, if you're going to be working on War and Peace, which is what I've been lucky enough to do, these are all uh, relevant setups. What do you think are the common characteristics of people who will be or could be successful in this field. And I and I ask that question because I think self-awareness is mm-hmm. a really important quality to foster. And I think our Java junkies would do well and will save themselves maybe a lot of pain and angst later if they know themselves and yeah, yeah. set themselves up for success in terms mm-hmm. of their career choice. Well, that's really a good question. I think about a, a phrase that somebody once told me was ascribed to President John Kennedy, and it was that he was an idealist without illusions. You do want to have an element of idealism here because this this is a very big undertaking uh, if you're trying to make the world more peaceful. But let's not be delusional. Let's not think that you're we don't martyrs don't really advance the cause. Let's not get too messianic because if you think you're the person that's going to deliver it, you're so modesty, humility, great sense of humor, love of people. Because at the end of the day, it's about people. One of the things that that you might surprise. In this space, is that many, many people in the State Department are attracted to this work intellectually. So they love the intellectual puzzles, but they're actually more introverted by nature. And so the the meeting, the convening, the meeting with people, the engaging others is actually kind of hard work for them. And so there needs to be a balance of introverts and extroverts. It can't all be people who just love the intellectual stimulation. It has to be some people who are much more motivated by the humanity. So those would be all things that I would I would offer. What skills do you wish you had but don't? And how have you coped? My great grandfather used this phrase, which I quote in the book, that that the uh, that the human stomach can digest anything except for introspection. So now you've asked the introspective question. I think I'm really quite patient, but you can always be more patient because there's a lot of repetition in this business. I'm fascinated by how big organizations get things done, but I'm a restless soul within them because I believe in change. I'm constantly uh, trying to push change, and sometimes that leads to frustration. I wish uh, when I was writing my book, I realized, boy, how much I did not know about a place that I spent several years in. Because when I was writing the book now, I was really able to indulge in a lot of the history and whatnot. So you, you do... You do kind of get on the run when you're in this work. And when you're on the run, you miss a lot of things. I mean, a, a leisurely walk around your neighborhood, you're going to see a lot more than you do if you're on the run through your neighborhood. But I, I would say, I mean, there are just probably so many so many things I could answer here. Everybody need a second shot. The reason that I try to ask this question mm. of the various people I interview is because we all have our shortcomings. Mm, correct. And I think that in my case... Something that I've learned over the years is to try to hire people and work Mm -hmm. with people who have strengths that I don't. Mm -hmm. And that's one way. And certainly when you're starting in your career, you don't have that luxury because you're at the bottom of the totem pole. Yeah. And I, I would say that I've always been quite independent. 
And so one thing that I, maybe two things that I know I could have done better. One is that I could have done regular reporting to the people I worked for because I tend to want them to have confidence in me turn this over me and I'll get the job done well. And so reporting back then ends up feeling like I've got some sort of a restriction on me. But almost everybody likes to get a sense of how you're doing, what you're doing, how you're going about it. I could have definitely done that better. And I probably could have taken, I probably could take problems higher up the food chain faster than I have. So, which I think is another way that you actually gain influence with the most senior people in an organization. If they see that you are looking to them for guidance, but I always sort of felt, well, it's my responsibility to come up with the answer. And if I didn't come up with the answer, then it would be a shortcoming. So I think that would be one area that I would really critique. Obviously, one of many skills you do have are the ability to network, to build Mm -hmm. teams. There are, I think it's not uncommon for people who are in their early 20s. These are muscles that they haven't had an opportunity Mm -hmm. to develop as much. What advice do you have, especially for those for whom this doesn't come easily, how they can expand their circle? Well, with our fellows in our Princeton program, we tell all of them, keep a coffee list and make sure that you actually reach out and on a regular basis, find an excuse to get out and see these people. And I would just say in the last couple of days, I've, I had a young person who had asked for advice, just graduated from Overland, and now he has landed in Colombia for his first in- internship after graduation. And he wrote me quickly to say that he was there. And he was getting settled. And he indicated that it was probably going to be a first stop, not a last stop for himself. And that then got me to thinking, well, who do I know who's in Colombia right now? So I sent him back a very quick note with two names and emails of people he should reach out to. He did that immediately. And that in turn generated a third name that my wife came up with of somebody who's going to show up in Bogota this coming week. So the curiosity to go get the names and keep asking people, who do you know? Who should I talk to? Anybody that uh, that you'd recommend? But then quickly do it. Don't put it aside. Just get that email. Um, emails are such an easy way to connect to somebody. They're not all going to write back and say, I'll see you tomorrow. But th- don't be discouraged. I mean, if you get one or two good ones, then you've got it. Now you're starting to build a network. And a network really is a wonderful way to enjoy a career and to build on it. And uh, people out there looking for you as well. I I had a story when I came back from, I'd been Deputy High Commissioner for Refugees, which is a pretty big job in the UN, in Geneva. I came back to Washington and I called an old friend and I said, I'm going to be looking for work. What do I need to do? And he said, "Uh, how long have you been away? And I said, two years. He said, oh, everybody's forgotten you. And so, and it was That's encouraging. But it was, it, but but it was a good sobering view. And he said, "What you need to do is go to a few events here in town and make sure you stand up and ask a question." So I did that, and within ten days, I had two job offers that had basically come from people seeing that I was back in town. It wasn't that I had responded. So I recommend just engaging and being engaged, and that's going to make you a better leader at the end of the day. Because I think an engaged, engaged leadership is really critical as well. So we're going to flash back here to your time in undergrad at Harvard. Mm-hmm. You majored in government and had you said what would be the equivalent of a minor in Spanish literature. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? Not really. 
No. And it was because it was very theoretical and professors were almost all distinguished people like Henry Kissinger and, and Hoffman and Carl Friedrich and Carl Deutsch. Or, I mean, so big names, and, but many of them had been had left Europe and ended up bringing their scholarship to, to Harvard. And I found it pretty dense. And then lucky enough to work on a congressman's campaign for the U.S. Senate in Maine. And suddenly... Some of what we had studied came to life, but a whole new universe, and it was much, much more dynamic than anything I had seen before. And and it had daily practical problems, like we're running against a very popular icon, Margaret Chase Smith. She was the only woman in the United States Senate, and we had, and she was an elderly person, but we were told to run a totally respectful campaign. But it was difficult to find anybody who would enlist, who would be seen as working against. Her. There were people who were ready to vote against her, but or for my candidate because he was a popular congressman, but but they didn't want to be enlisted. So how do you solve that problem? Well, it turns out that most of our early volunteers were were junior high school kids because that's about where you could find them. So th- that was pretty exciting. And then you could okay, well they can make phone calls as well as anybody, and they can leaflet as well as anybody, and so it was a bit of a youth movement. So I don't want to diminish the importance of the, of the practical work. And now that I teach at Princeton, I think a lot of what I'm teaching is extremely relevant. And I'm hoping that it's exciting people about the prospect of doing this kind of work as well. Is the takeaway here, don't worry if you're not excited yeah. by what you're studying in school? Yeah, I think so. Hopefully find things that do excite you and then figure out what was the element that did. Was it the teacher? Was it the other students in the class? Was it the reading, the combination of all the above? Was it the guest? But if you can get that analytical piece going, that what is it that's motivating you? Because it may not be the subject. It may just be that you've got a compelling professor. So how did you get your first job out of school? Was it working on this campaign? It really was, That really was my first job. And it was uh, very low paying. <laughs> there really wasn't any pay. I mean, I got I got about fifty dollars of food a week and a and a free room. But I had responsibility, and I had the opportunity to interpret what needed to be done my way. And I got discovered the entire, pretty much the whole state of Maine, or the northern two thirds of the state of Maine. And I had a good boss, a campaign manager between us and the and the candidate. The candidate was great, but you didn't see the candidate that often, and you didn't actually see since I was not in the headquarters after the first two weeks. I think the campaign manager realized this is a guy that likes his own space, and he's pretty entrepreneurial. And when we had the first couple of all staff meetings, I always had tons of ideas and probably too many ideas. But and I think I think it was both a comfort to him, but also to get me out of his, out of his daily sight. But he also recognized that was a good use of of the energy that I had. You obviously want to work for people who kind of interpret you well and and see whatever you're offering, so you're not having to constantly tailor yourself and feel like you're changing yourself for them or living up to a behavior that that, that is artificial every day. It's, at the end of the day, you want to be as comfortable as you can. And I assume that most people work better when they feel some pressure, but not constant uh, personality-driven pressure. Do you remember how you got that job? I do, yeah. You know, this is just a great story. It's one of my favorite stories because it taught me a lot in terms of helping to mentor other people and to, and to help others network. So I thought I was going to be drafted in 19 19- when I graduated from college in 1971 because I had a draft number that had already gone by in the first six months of the year. But it turned out that the Congress let the law run out and they and a lot of things happened. So I 
I came back to New York, to outside New York, where we had lived for a few years. And my Little League baseball coach was a great political, he was one of the top political pollsters in the country. And I went in to see him. And this was Ollie Quayle, Oliver Quayle, who was one of John Kennedy's pollsters with Lou Harris. So the two of them did Kennedy's polling, which was so influential in the 1960 campaign. He said, you know, the only place you will have real value to a campaign would be right here in this area of Westchester County, where, where you spent some uh, some of your elementary and junior high school years, or in Maine. It just so happens that I have two congressmen as clients of mine who are running here in this area and one in Maine. And then he picked up the phone right there while I was sitting there and he called, uh, he tried to call all three of them and he got through to one of them and he said, Congressman, this is Ollie Quayle. And of course, they always, they knew who their pollster was big time. And uh, he said, I have a young man here who I'd, I'd stake my personal reputation on the job he's going to do for you. And I, what do you think about giving him a job? I couldn't believe it. Now, it, that did not turn into a job, but the congressman from Maine, Bill Hathaway, called me a couple of days later at my grandmother's house. And he said, look, I've heard good things about you. I said, well, I've heard good things about you. And he said, you have to stop talking to my mother. <laughs> and he sent me up to meet the campaign manager. And you know, they said, look, a full-time job with no pay and uh, lots of responsibility. What do you think? I mean, that's <laughs> Sounds not quite, terrific. That's not quite the way they sold it, but that's what it was. And so it was really that. That was the break. And so you do need those pushes across the finish line. Any of us who think we're self-made are delusional. You always get something and somebody somewhere. So look for that help and, and leave yourself in the in, in places where you can get that help. And don't always say, no, I got it all taken care of. Let people know what I don't know is this, this, and this. And I'd like to know more about this. And do you know somebody there? And so, but again, help to think it through because people are more helpful if you give them a specific task than if you give them the general, here's my life, now what do we do? The kind of advice you get in that case is usually, well, I went to this school and got this graduate degree and they worked for me, or I'm a lawyer and this worked for me. If you tell people exactly what you need, they can, almost everybody will be more helpful. And that happened to me much, much later in my career for one of the big jobs where I had to, I basically was told, can you get the support of this person, this person, and this person. If you can, we would like to hire you. But to hire you, we're going to have to tell another candidate who has great patrons that you have equally great patrons. And in this case, we've got to give it to the other patrons. That would decide that competition as opposed to my coming in second because I hadn't done that other work. So really try to figure out the path. So your path, obviously, you went to an Ivy League school, went on and got your graduate degree. I think anyone who looks at your resume is going to say, holy cow, this man reached the very top of his profession. It doesn't feel like that, but thank you. Why doesn't it feel like that? If you feel like you want to make a difference, if that's what really was driving you, there's always so much more you can do. So it's not this satisfying. I mean, it's not like I sit back and go, oh, this didn't work out, that didn't work out. But it's just... You, you recognize that sometimes your best work when you're not in a big job, when you don't have a title, when you can actually say, I, I fully know what I did to help somebody else in this case. Or sometimes you have a big, a big title and it's like, I never get to see any of the people I'm supposed to be helping. I'm a New Englander, so you're never quite satisfied as a New Englander. There's always a, there are always 10 more stones in that field that should be picked out and put into the wall so you might be able to grow three tomato plants. I get it. Look, I'm thinking about the weeding I have to do in my garden <laughs> and the house that I have yeah. to clean after I finish it looks, talking well, It looks you. wonderful. I don't well. think you have to do anything. Take the day off. <laughs> <laughs> so that was really my prelude to saying that 
we've all had ups and downs, mm. specifically with careers. Sure. Could you share with our listeners as a way of saying, yes, I may have gone to an Ivy League school and you know have all of these big titles on my resume, but even I have had to dig deep sure. at various points to get up the next day, put on a brave face and keep moving forward. Well, you run into obstacles of all kinds. And sometimes you work with a boss or a team that you just fit in with beautifully. And sometimes you're the odd person out. And it doesn't really have that much to do with your upbringing or your or your experiences. But it could be chemistry. It could be personality type. could be where you fit on the Myers-Briggs scale or whatever. So, or you're just not as fascinated by it. I mean, there were times when I was the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. that a, a major function that we had was to renegotiate agreements, a, a language in resolutions that had been negotiated for the last 10, 20, or 30 years. And all we were doing this year was a new, one new sentence that somebody was messing with. It was hard for me to feel like that was going to change the world. I thought we were putting too much time and effort into those things when we were maybe spending hundreds of millions of dollars on, on another part of the UN that we were not overseeing at all. But that was the emphasis of the, that was one of the points of emphasis of the job. So I'm not sure I did that job as well as I could have or as I would have liked to have. So you sometimes you go back and give yourself grades in every job. You don't get you don't give yourself an A in every job. And sometimes your grades align with the way your boss would have seen it as well. Now, there are times that I thought I was doing A work and I've had a boss who thought I was doing a C plus work because uh, we had just a different view of the job. That's very tough. And I've generally benefited from having really good and generous bosses. But be accepting of that reality. It's not always going to work out that way. And sometimes it's particularly painful if at the beginning of your career, you have bad bosses. So I would say avoid, be very careful not to get into situations that are abusive or where you feel victimized early in your career, because then that can become a pattern. And you don't, that's a pattern you just don't want to repeat. And so I had, I had good bosses early, even though I made big mistakes. I'll just tell you one story. You know, one of my jobs when I, when the congressman won the Senate race, he put me in charge of his offices in Southern Maine. And one of my jobs was to pick him up at the airport and drive him around the state. And so he could have very productive meetings. Well, I did a number of things wrong. I oftentimes at the meetings, I thought that I was an equal participant. That was not the case. He was a senator, but I had not really gotten that lesson. I didn't always buy gas. That's that's pretty basic. I mean, I have the car filled so he doesn't. we don't have to stop between places. I once was very late to pick him up to, to take him to the airport. And he was waiting there with his wife for about an hour hour. And he was generous not to fire me, but they did take me down from $14,000 a year to $12,500 a year. So <laughs> that hurts. <laughs> so, but these are things, I mean, these are pretty basic mistakes. And when you're starting a job, there's a lot of stuff you don't know. And so don't just be observing, be ready to ask and, and make sure that you understand what the, what the most basic requirements are, because I was fulfilling that job maybe at a higher level in some elements, but in the most basic elements, I wasn't even meeting the passing grade. And I can tell you that that was an ice cold ride to the airport that day with a, with a senator. <laughs> and by the way, I compounded it by bringing my girlfriend in the car. Uh-huh. <laughs> so so, so a, lot of, a lot of bad judgment, right? <laughs> but we did 
barely make the plane. If he'd missed the plane, I think we, I probably would have lost my job. You would have lost more than $1,500 <laughs> from your salary, right? <laughs> so you wrote a book recently mm-hmm. called Peace Works, America's Unifying Role in a Turbulent World. Why did you want to write this book now? And what are the lessons that your readers should take away from the book? I think it's an incredibly important time for the United States to do a better job in peace building around the world. We've made monstrous investments of of lives and of our resources trying to intervene in conflicts or sometimes even starting conflicts over the last 30 or 40 years. And I've had the opportunity to work in 40 plus of these Conflict. So I felt like I had a wider view than almost anybody, but I'd also had a venture capital fund to work in these places. So I'd been able to test ideas and see what worked and what we could do better. And I felt the guild is is relatively new in the space, but the dominant professions, the, the military, the diplomats, the development experts, the humanitarians all have their own ways. And these places require the best of each of them. So it requires more of a hybrid. And I thought I could bring that out in a book. And I, I believe deep in my heart, I believe that if the American people are more engaged in these kinds of issues, that better policy and practice will result. And so I wanted to write a book that what I thought would invite an interested citizen, a concerned citizen, invite them in, engage them in an accessible way to some of these very complex problems. Because I don't believe that foreign policy and this kind of work should be left to just the brain surgeons and the nuclear physicists of this work. I I believe that there is a wisdom in the crowds and democracy benefits from that. And this book really is shows them how to do it, the changes that we should be making, what they where they should be vigilant, and it also hopefully will help practitioners do the work better. I'm going to ask you a question that your answer could be a couple of hours long. <laughs> I'm going to ask you for a shorter answer if you could. Can you make it a multiple but choice? I know. <laughs> <laughs> we can certainly think of many instances where peace has worked, but I think the knee jerk would be to say that peace hasn't worked in so many more places. How can we have that optimistic perspective? How can we have a unified, holistic, whole of government response that will bring about that reality? Well, the short answer is read Peace Works, because it does try to take that on. Is the world going to hell? Do we ever succeed at these places? And then it goes through a few quite a few of the recent, the last 20 years, um, really with quite a bit about Syria as well, which is our current 500,000 people have died. The United States is spending billions of dollars dropping bombs in a place that most of our citizens are really not even that connected to. So, I mean, I think the book really takes this on. So that's the that's the shortest of all the answers to your question. You know, maybe if you want to come back and I'll give you another short I would like our Java junkies to know that I've ordered the book. <laughs> I haven't yet had a chance to read it. Right. Starting up a company and all of this has taken quite a bit of my time, but it, it, it will be. Final question. If you could go back and do college all over again, based on the wisdom that you have today, what might you do differently and why? 
Well, I majored in the community at college, so I really was into every element of the community. I was a columnist. I was an athletic director. I played on a varsity team. I was I was a judge. You know, I just did everything I could except for go to class. And I really enjoyed the learning. And so I would encourage that people strike a good balance and not get too absorbed one way or the other. Now that I have faculty members, I'm a faculty member myself, but I have faculty members on the selection committee for our fellowships. It's very interesting to see how the professors put such a premium on performance in the classroom. They really like the candidates who seem to be really good students. And that's and they have a great favoritism for them. I like the balance. I'd like to see that people have really gotten the most out of the experience. And if you've had, I mean, again, there's so much of the college experience is such a huge privilege because you can be in the choir and you can serve breakfast in the dining hall and you can also take really wonderful courses. And so that mix of things, you don't really get anything quite so rich just about anywhere else. So I would just encourage people to make sure that they don't do everything. I probably did too many things, but that they but they really take advantage of the of the breadth and and then get some depth in a few areas. But also make sure that you tend to the scholarship. <laughs> I could have done a better job there. Ambassador Rick Barton, thank you so much yeah, my pleasure. for taking us through giving us a little window into your incredibly rich life of service and thank you sharing your your advice and your counsel with the java junkie community even though we didn't actually have a cup of coffee <laughs> thank you for making time for coffee with me in the java junkie community today oh, thank you my pleasure Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much. <laughs>